It's the Rush Fan Cast. Something for nothing. Steve and Jerry with you. What's up, Jer? Uh, not much. Just drinking some water. How was your Christmas? It was good. It was low-key, of course. What else are you going to do these days? Yeah, everyone's shut in. <laughs> We're all shut-ins. We're all shut-ins. So uh, Christmas was what? Uh, Friday, and now it's Monday the 28th, and we've got a Christmas present for the Rush fans today on the podcast. Are you going to tell them what it is, or are you just going to wait? It's it's a tease, Jared. It's a tease. Oh, okay. You have to unwrap it later. Although they probably read the description of the podcast <laughs> and already know what the present is. But for those who didn't, it's coming up. I could make the description of the podcast just the question marks. <laughs> I don't think that would be a good idea. Question mark and the Mysterians or whatever that band was called. Want to remind everybody you can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are the RushCast. Email Jerry, TheRushCast at gmail.com. The bass intro was done by Lex. He did not do a Christmas song. Oh, he should have. Should he have? Rush didn't have any Christmas songs, Jer. No, they didn't. And I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not a big fan of rock and roll Christmas covers. Neither am I, but I I don't think it would have worked with Rush. I just don't. They they could have done a little drummer boy, and it just would have been Neil playing for like 20 minutes. I think Alex (laughs) did the little drummer boy. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So there is a Rush Christmas song. Yeah. We're not playing it, though. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, before we get to our guest today, Jer, we got a lot of feedback about the episode we ran a couple of weeks ago with Ryan Reed of Ultimate Classic Rock, Rolling Stone, Spin. He's a journalist with many publications. Yep. A lot of negative feedback, which I wasn't surprised by, but still sort of surprised by. I was bracing for it. I was bracing for an onslaught. And emails, you know, I, I get the emails. and a lot of the emails were very positive in that, you know, they recognized how difficult the task doing it was, even though they might've disagreed, of course, with the rankings, they, it was a disagreement and an understanding that of course there's going to be a disagreement because it's so difficult to do. Right. And in case you didn't hear the episode, Ryan ranked all 167 rush songs from one to 167. Yeah. And he got a little bit of negative feedback couple of years ago when he did the list and we figured he'd get some more when we talked about the list. And really the negative feedback was more about the humorous offhand descriptions that he had of some of the songs. And I think that's fair criticism. Yeah, that's fair criticism. It's fair because we talked about that too, you know, over a year ago. Yeah. That we weren't happy with some of his descriptions. He was a little too harsh in some spots, I think. That's true. But, you know, you're kind of like me, right? You don't really have any sacred cows, very few sacred cows, things that cannot be mocked. Oh, no, I'll mock anything. At least in your personal life, you know, larger, larger world concerns. Some of them are off limits. But but when it comes to, you know, if somebody's going to make a joke, as long as I find it funny, it's, it's okay with me. I mean, the one that somebody that we talked about and somebody wrote in about was the rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. (laughs) I mean, that is not exactly the description I would use for any Rush song, but it's still pretty funny. Still pretty funny. Oh, definitely. Well, well, here are the two criticisms that I did have a problem with. The first one is I got some feedback saying that only a casual Rush fan would put Tom Sawyer at the top of their list. And I think that's ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. You know, fans love to put constraints on what they think a fan should be. You know what I mean? There have to be some kind of parameters because people like to be in a small group. They want to be 
you know, part of this fan group. And if everybody can be a fan, it doesn't make it special anymore. So people like to put definitions on things. And one of the definitions of being a big Rush fan is that you can't put arguably their most iconic, popular, and best song at number one because it's too obvious or something. And the interesting thing is these people could not be convinced at all. Nope. Tom Sawyer, if it's number one, you're not a real Rush fan or you're not a real big Rush fan. Right. You're a casual fan. Yeah. I don't know, man. We do our top, we're going to at least do like a top 20 list at some point. Oh, sure. And um, I hate to, I hate to break it to people, but Tom Sawyer is going to be really high on my list, if not number one. Well, it's going to be high on my list too. I don't think it's going to be number one, but it's not going to not be number one because it's popular. Yeah. It's going to not be number one because I like a different song better. That's all. Yeah. There's a, there's a certain attitude that comes up in fandoms all the time and it's an exclusionary way of thinking. And I'm not exactly sure why, because you would think you'd want more people to enjoy the thing that you enjoy, but people just love to exclude other people based on some bizarre criteria that they just made up. Like my daughter was her first year in, in, college she's been interested in, in uh you know dungeons and dragons for a while but never had anybody to play with nobody else was interested in her friend group so when she got to school she joined the dungeons and dragons club and she was she said she was very unwelcome from the very beginning she was one of like three girls in the room of like 30 or 40 people and she said she could just tell that they everyone just looked down on on her she felt very uncomfortable because they were just so unfriendly about the whole thing because she was a girl or she had no experience at all. I don't know what criteria they were working off of, but she didn't go back. She went a couple of times and she didn't go back. And to me, that's a shame because she was interested enough to go to this meeting just blind and the people there could have welcomed her, showed her exactly how to play. And she could have been a lifelong player of this obviously popular game, but not now. It's a shame. It's a shame. So another reason that people disqualified Ryan was because he never saw Rush live. I got a comment from a guy who said he never saw Rush live disqualified. And again, there was no convincing this guy. If he didn't see Rush live, he can't have an opinion is what he said about Rush. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's obviously so, so narrow minded and bizarre because Rush didn't, again, we've said this many times. We live on the East Coast in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. We have access to some of the greatest venues in all of America. And we've seen shows, so many shows, so many shows, but it's only because of where we live. We just have people, you know, bands, large and small, come through New York. They just do it because they can play a bunch of places and we went to see them. Where, where, he lived in what? Ten, he lives in Tennessee, right, Ryan? He lives in Knoxville, Tennessee which is three hours from Nashville. Mm. And that's the closest city that Rush played to him in his concert-going lifetime. Yeah. Three hours. Now, that's, that's a long way. That's a long way. We're talking, how, that's, a, that's a long day. It's a long day. Driving three hours, going to a three-hour concert, and then driving three hours back home. And you said that you did the math on Ryan's age, right? So he's, yeah. what, 31? Yeah, early 30s, yeah. Early 30s. When Rush last played, he was how old? 24, 25? Yep. 
something like that. How do we know he had the financial means to, first of all, purchase a concert ticket, and secondly, get himself three hours to Nashville to see Rush? Right, especially I'm assuming, you know, he's, he freelances as a rock journalist for the most part. So back then, he was probably hustling mm-hmm. to, you know, get gigs anywhere he could. He maybe didn't have the time to take off. Not everybody has time off. He may have been working the day Rush played and he had a deadline for a story. Right. You don't know what the situation was. And back then, I say back then, at the at the end, when they started when Rush started doing the evening with Rush shows, those ticket prices started getting out of control. Oh yeah. I, I don't think we paid less than $175 a ticket for those shows. I mean, that's a lot of money. And if you have to work the next day, right? how are you driving home three hours after a show till three in the morning and then getting up the next day and going to work? Right. You're not doing it. It's just not going to happen, no matter how much you want to do it. Like you said, Jerry, it's easy for a guy like me in New Jersey to say, whoa, how could he have not seen Rush? Yeah. Not a real fan, but you got to put yourself in the person's situation. Yeah. It's just, again... People want to be part of a small group. I don't know. It just makes everybody feel better to think that they are truer fans than other people. It happens everywhere, everywhere. And, you know, you and I, I think uh, we would describe ourselves as recovering jerks, right? Would you describe yourself as that? As a recovering jerk? Why do you consider yourself that? (laughs) Because back in our younger days, that's how we were. We were very very strict about music, right? This music sucks. That music sucks. Right. You're, you're right. Yep. So I'm, I still have a knee jerk reaction sometimes, but you know, my kids have exposed me to music that I have, would never have listened to. I was saying to my daughter the other day, as we were driving around, we have a, we have a driving playlist, my younger daughter. And since there's nothing to do, we go driving sometimes at night and we listen to this huge Spotify playlist that we have. And I put music on it and she puts music on it and she has a pop sensibility. And I've grown to really love some of these songs. And I said to her as we were driving, I said, you know, if my 15-year-old self could see me listening to this song, he would want to stab me in the heart. (laughs) It's so true. But you know what? Over the years, I just want to listen to good music. And I'm just not going to try and figure out where it's from first to see whether or not I'm going to like it. I've got one more thing on this. Say this is true. And someone who's never seen Rush can't have an opinion about Rush. What about the teenager who just discovered Rush? Yeah. Can't go see them live. Nope. Can that teenager grow up to be a rock journalist and then write about Rush? Right. Of course they can. What about the Beatles? Right. Who's seen the Beatles didn't tour after 65 or 66? That's a great, great example. Everybody has written about the Beatles. And nobody saw them live after 66 or whatever it was. Most people who write about the Beatles have never seen them live. So we just have to discount their opinions about the Beatles. I guess, obviously, right? It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Anyway, we could talk about this for an hour, but we've got a fantastic guest today, Jer, on the Rush Fancast. A Christmas present for our listeners. (sighs) She's a media historian, radio consultant, associate professor of communication and media studies at Lesley University 
in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she's responsible, Jeff, for us being Rush fans. Really, that is absolutely one hundred percent true. I did this, <laughs> Donna Halper. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Oh, what a pleasure to be here. You know, of all the places I'd rather be, Bermuda is one of them, but yours is fine with me. We're number two. You're not taking place in Bermuda, are you? (laughs) No, but I could change my background if you like. Okay. Well, we're very honored to have you here. We'd like to start, Donna, at the very beginning. Tell us about the moment that you first dropped the needle on Rush's debut album. What was going through your mind in that moment? Well, first of all, the thing that people always are surprised at is you don't remember the exact moment. (laughs) And no, I didn't because for the very same reason that when Marconi, the guy that first sent a radio signal across the Atlantic, he probably wasn't thinking, boy, you know, tomorrow I'll be in all the newspapers. (laughs) The fact is, when you're doing something that's part of your job, and I'm not trying to bring this down to, oh, it was just my job. I'm saying every day as a music director, I got tons of new records because back in those days, everything was vinyl. And if you were on an album rock station, you got, you know, maybe 20 albums a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. But it was a pretty consistently large number. Most of them were awful, and you weren't going to play them under any circumstances. But every now and then, some of them would be quite good, and you'd be like, wow, I really got to give these guys a start. Now, as a music director at an album rock station, the first thing I'm looking for is songs that fit our format, okay? So if it sounds like, you know, Frank Sinatra or Barry Manilow, the chances are it ain't right for us. Second thing I'm looking for whenever possible is a long version. Now, this has been mistold, thanks in large part to a DJ out in California who completely misinterpreted what I said. So let me be real clear. Back then, the way radio stations were, there's no automation. There's generally not a lot of tape. There's no digital. It hasn't been invented yet. And so if you're on the air at night, you're generally by yourself because everybody has gone home. And if nature calls and (laughs) nature would call, unfortunately, that happened a lot. And as a music director, my job was to make sure that A, people had the best songs, but B, that they also had some evening songs that were longer if they needed to go. Because every DJ's worst nightmare was hearing the click, click, click as the record (laughs) ran out and you're still, you know, doing what nature has asked you to do and you can't get back there. And so, yeah, so we had a lot of long songs, which were jokingly called bathroom songs. So I'm looking for a long song and I dropped the needle on Working Man. and. The moment I heard it, I knew it was a perfect record for Cleveland. What I didn't know, and people to this day are like, well, didn't you realize? No, I didn't realize. And the reason I didn't realize that one day Rush would have a star on the Walk of Fame or have, you know, umpty fumpty gold records. No, I didn't realize that at all. And the reason I didn't 
is because as a music director, you're getting so many records in and you think some of them are great and the listeners can't stand them. And then there's other records that you think are just the worst thing that ever happened to the history of music. And the song goes on to be number one. So there's no way of predicting it. Every band has songs that you listen to that song and you go, oh, my God, that's a hit. And you're the only one who thinks so. And there's other songs you listen and it's like, why did they even record that? And it becomes number one. So there was no way of predicting. Just because I like Working Man, there's no guarantee. And I knew that, okay? I mean, I'd been at this for a while, and I understood that. But I still had this feeling about the song. I just felt that people would react to it. And in this case, I was right. Long story short, what I was thinking when I first opened that manila envelope that came from my friend Bob Roper up in Canada, First of all, I was thinking, I wonder why Roper is sending this to me. I wonder if it's on his label, because we got imported versions of records all the time. But the second thing I was wondering was, am I the only one that thinks this is a really good song? (laughs) And as it turned out, no, I wasn't the only one. But as I said, if you had told me back then that 40-something years later, I would still be in touch with the band, I would be friends with their families. I would be friends with the people that are friends with the friends with the friends. And I'd still be on podcasts, webcasts, you know, TV, radio, telling these stories and talking about the love that we all have for this band who have changed so many people's lives. If you had told me that day when I opened that record that all of those things would happen, I would have been really skeptical. So in, in so many parts of our lives, things have to intersect exactly in order for them to work out in any kind of way. So what is the intersectionality there in 1974 with you, this album, the climate, to give Rush its uh, kickstart in America? Now, it's funny you should ask that because that may well be one of life's mysteries, okay? I got a PhD. I didn't have one back then, but I got one now. So you'll have to let me know if I sound smarter. So what's going on back then? The Vietnam War is finally winding down, or so we were told. Uh, Nixon is getting almost impeached, but he's leaving office. Gerald Ford is coming in. Everybody liked Jerry Ford. Um, There's so many things that were happening in the culture, like culture wars and stuff like that. The FCC is still very strict and they're always looking to come after album rock stations for like drug lyrics and stuff like that. But there really was no one thing that I could point to and say, aha, the time was right for Rush. Because what the time was right for was WMMS. WMMS was a groundbreaking station in terms of its ability to turn things into hits. If we played them and we got behind them, an awful lot of listeners would go out and buy those records, come see that concert, et cetera, et cetera. But again, there was no guarantee that it would last. Now, I can't really point to 
one thing in the culture that was going on at that time. But what I will point to is the power of radio and the power of a station, in this case, WMMS, to get behind a band, the power of the ability to bring that band in, make them available to the fans, help them to play their music to a wider audience. Rush were very surprised. They really were. I mean, Getty said to me straight up, he was like, we can't get arrested in Toronto. I mean, no (laughs) one plays us in Toronto, okay? I mean, the rockers, you either played the clubs or you played the clubs. And for variety, you could always play the clubs. Mm -hmm. But in terms of getting a lot of airplay, so they were shocked and chagrined that they suddenly were a hit in Cleveland because they had no idea that Bob Roper, with whom I am also still in touch, Bob Roper of A&M of Canada, whose label had passed on the band. They didn't even sign Rush. But Roper liked the band. He had heard them live. He liked what he heard. He thought that maybe the album wasn't ready for prime time. But he thought the band had possibilities. And so in an act of altruism, he sent me the record. He didn't have to. He didn't get paid for doing that. Neither did I. We just both believed in good music. And he wanted to give him a shot. And I wanted to give him a shot. But the guys in the band, they had no idea. This was all just one nice person sending it to another nice person who sent it to, you know. And the next thing you know, Rush are in Cleveland doing a live concert. And then the next thing you know, they're signed to a U.S. record label. And the next thing you know, they get Neil, God rest his soul, and on and on and on. All completely unexpected and all in large part due to the power and the influence of WMMS. Now, Donna, can something like that happen today? You're a radio consultant. Can a radio station break a band today? Is that possible? No, not usually. And here's why. It wasn't that long ago when radio still had tremendous influence and tremendous power. Today, radio is one of a multitude of ways that people hear music. They could hear it on a podcast. They can hear it on Spotify or Pandora. Pre-pandemic, they could hear it in a club. They could hear it on a YouTube video. But the days when radio was it, them days is gone, as they say. So that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just means that radio doesn't have the power that it used to have. I mean, the days when if you didn't get airplay, you were in trouble, maybe that wasn't such a good thing because in many cases, radio stations really just didn't get behind certain bands. That didn't stop people from finding the band. It didn't stop them from finding out about the band because Rush toured relentlessly. They were on the road about 350 days a year. Okay. But my point is today, On some levels, it's easier for bands to get some exposure, but on other levels, it's not. Let's say that I'm the new version of Rush, okay? No one's ever heard of me before. So what do I do? I can make a video. I can put it up on YouTube. I can 
put something about my band on Instagram or whatever. But me and 65,000 other bands, there's no way of knowing if I'm going to be able to break through as an independent artist. That radio airplay really did make a difference for all of its faults. And radio absolutely had faults. But for all of its faults, radio was able to make hits and give new artists exposure in a way that other mass media could not. Now, I'm not one for looking back on the good old days with any nostalgia. But what I do miss is I miss the excitement of knowing that because I played a record, thousands and thousands of people heard it. And there was always the chance that they could get behind it, get into it, and decide that they wanted to hear more from that band. And I had the opportunity to help bands become famous. Could I do that today? No, because radio doesn't have the dominant position that it used to. Now it's just one of many media fighting for people's time and attention. Radio is still a factor. Radio still breaks hits. But it is no longer the mass medium to break hits. So let's go back to the early days, right? You become friends with the band. I did. Or pretty early on. You had a, just a connection with them as people. Sort of like a big sister. As far as I was concerned, the band were like people I could mentor. Not like I thought I was so swell, but I'm like, I'm the one that brought him to Cleveland. So I kind of felt a little responsible for them. And we became friends and we're still friends and we're still in touch. And I feel profoundly grateful about that. When they stopped needing a big sister and were able to like pretty much do what they needed to do and they had great confidence in themselves and they understood the industry, then I just was a friend and continued to fight for them and continued to defend them when the critics attacked them and worked real hard with a group of people to get them a star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame and worked real hard to persuade the judges at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that it was long past time to induct them. And basically, whenever silly rumors would come out, I was one of the people that would kind of get out there and bat those rumors down. And um, I'll, I'll give you an example. After Neil passed, God rest his soul. Uh, there was some online rumor from some talk show host, who will remain nameless, that um, Getty and Alex were going to reunite the band and find another drummer. And I'm like, hey, no, that's not a thing, okay? Because if you saw Beyond the Lighted Stage, which I'm sure we all did, Getty said very clearly, if there's no Neil, there's no Rush. And Getty is a person of his word. Now, do Getty and Alex keep in touch? Yes, absolutely. Would they like to collaborate on something? Sure. But they're both really busy. They both have all kinds of projects going on. And they've been using the time to, like, spend it with their families and stuff like that. Um, watch their grandchildren, etc. These are family men. And, yeah. They've talked about collaborating on something, getting the band back together and picking another drummer in your dreams. And so I got in touch when I saw that floating around the internet. 
I got in touch with their management and I'm still in touch with them too. And said, you know, would you like me to go online and just squash this? And they said, sure, go right ahead. And I did. And I was real clear with people. You know, I understand you'd like to see the band get back together. Uh, I'd like a million dollars and a pony. Okay. Uh, Trip to Bermuda would be wonderful. And you guys said you'd give me one and you haven't come up with it yet. But the reality is they're not getting back together. They're not bringing in a new drummer. What they are probably going to do at some point is do something for charity. I would not be surprised if that happened. But a regular basis with a regular band and let's get back out on the road. No. And if anybody tells you that that's what they're going to do, they're speculating. So to this day, I do keep in touch. And I'm profoundly grateful that I still have that relationship. Are we close friends? No. Okay, they live their life. I live my life. But do we still keep in touch? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'm very proud of that. And I want for them peace, health, happiness. And when I say peace, I mean they've been through a lot. They were very close with Neil. They loved Neil like a brother. That was like nothing that nobody expected. I mean, yes, they were there through his journey. But till the very end, you always hope that someone's going to recover. Okay? I mean, I'm a cancer survivor. We're taping this on a Wednesday. If I make it till Friday, I will be six years cancer-free. As I've said many, many times, my grandmother had the same kind of cancer I did. She only lived to be 44. I'm 73. Look at how a generation and a half later, look at how far we've come. But sadly, there are other kinds of cancer that just, they get nothing for them. Neil fought bravely. He fought every step of the way. And the other guys and their families, they were with him. They were standing up for him. They were respecting his wishes and keeping it out of the media and keeping it out of the press. So, yeah, I wish the guys peace because they've been through a lot this year. Losing someone that has been like 45 years, 46 years of your life, that's tough. And knowing there's not a lot you can do, that's even tougher. So like I said, the sense that I get is the guys have taken the year to really just reconnect with the simple things. I mean, Getty has talked about just watching his grandchildren, spending more time with his mother. His mother is elderly. Who knows how long any of us have with any of our loved ones. So yeah, I'm just happy that they're out there. I'm happy they're healthy. I wish Neil were still with us. His music lives on like a legacy. I just don't know what else to tell you beyond the fact that the friendship that I have with the guys has changed over the years, but the fact that it's still there at all, I feel profoundly grateful. And back in earlier days when Neil joined the band, your relationship to the band, you know, like you said, as a big sister. What were your immediate kind of feelings about John Rotsey no longer being in the band? Were you concerned that, you know, this might be the end of the band? No, I really wasn't because I understood what was going on. 
One of the other things I've spent years doing is batting down the rumors that Rutsey was a drug addict. He was not a drug addict. He really wasn't. He was a diabetic who didn't take care of himself. And I'm not saying anything to insult his family or loved ones who are still with us. He was a kid at the time. He was 18. They didn't have all the fancy schmancy stuff they have today to take care of diabetes. I got a friend who's a diabetic. He's a doctor, for heaven's sake, okay? I mean, he's in surgery for hours at a time. I mean, he wears a little monitor thingy that lets him know when his insulin is low. They didn't have any of that back then. You kidding me? If you had diabetes, you had to go to the hospital and get your insulin if you were severely diabetic, okay? There was none of this like little, oh, you just give a little finger stick and then you take. It was a very complicated process for adults, let alone for an 18-year-old who liked to party. The kid wasn't taking care of himself. He wasn't doing the stuff that he needed to do to be healthy. And the other two guys knew it. The other two guys in the band, as much as they loved Rutsey, they knew. They wanted to go on to the next thing. They were suddenly happening in Cleveland. And the idea of just being a three-chord bar band, mm, they wanted more than that. Not that there was anything wrong with it. It got them to the next level. But they were already thinking about what the next thing was. Not that they were planning on throwing Rutsey under the bus but he had health problems and they needed someone who was a very strong songwriter, somebody who could take them to that proverbial next level. So they were already thinking about what the next thing was. Now I can't read their minds. So I just know what they've told me over the years. And I don't think there was a conscious decision like, Oh, on a Wednesday, we're getting rid of him. I think it sort of evolved that it was like, we can't always be near a hospital so that he can get his shots. We can't always make sure that he like takes his medicine when he's supposed to. And he likes to party. And by the way, we're kids and so do we. Mm. So, you know, they're all very young back then. And when they decided to replace Rutsey, I was not terribly surprised because I sort of figured that at some point they were going to have to make a move. And I'm sure it was difficult and I'm sure it was painful. And I know for a true fact that Rutsey was very bitter about it. Part of what he was bitter about was not just like what happened with Alex and Getty, but the hand that he was dealt. He wished he'd been dealt a different hand, particularly as the years passed and he saw improved treatments for diabetes, you know, stuff that could have made his life a lot simpler. There are diabetics who are out there playing in rock bands, even as we speak. My point is, when it happened, I kind of figured it was going to happen. I kind of figured it was inevitable. And when I met Neil, I knew, I didn't know him, but I knew that they wanted a certain skill set, a certain qualification. And Neil played drums kind of like Keith Moon. He was like sort of that like British sort of rocker. He could write lyrics. He was well read. I knew that that's what they were looking for. Now, what did we think of each other? Uh, he was really suspicious of me. Not because it was me, Donna, but because I had a pre-existing relationship mm -hmm. with the guys in the band and he didn't know me. But 
we got along great once we got to know each other because we had something in common. We both loved literature. He came to my apartment in Cleveland, and we ended up talking literature. Imagine <laughs> that. We liked the same play. He was a big Shakespeare fan. He liked King Lear. He borrowed a book of mine. He borrowed a copy of my Shakespeare King Lear uh, paperback. Never did return it. Apologized to me for it in 2010 <laughs> when we saw each other backstage. He invited me to come backstage and he kind of said, I still have your book. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I'm charging interest. Hello. You know, but it was actually a very interesting conversation because it was a conversation about what the play had meant to him back when he was like just barely out of his teens, when it was sort of an academic exercise, like great characters, great plot, you know, loved her, hated him, great costumes, you know, that kind of thing. But years later, he still was very, very impressed with the story of King Lear. And it was very personal for him. And I never did get the book back, but that was okay. Because I mean, there have been <laughs> other editions of it that have come out since. But my point is, once we found that we had things in common, no problem after that. He sent me a couple of postcards from the road. We were not like, we didn't talk a lot. But when we did see each other, it was always cordial. We always had fun just chatting about whatever. But to be honest with you, the person I've always kept in touch with the most has been Alex. And I consider myself very fortunate to have these relationships years later. So yeah, long story short, I felt bad for Rutsy, but I wasn't really surprised because once they got signed to a major label and they were going to be going out on the road all the time, I just couldn't see him doing it. I just couldn't. At, at that point in time, I just knew it wasn't going to work. God rest his soul as well. Rush recently released a video, Donna, for the Spirit of Radio, and you were prominently displayed in the video in cartoon form. I was a cartoon. You were a cartoon. <laughs> there are people that say I'm a cartoon anyway, but yeah. there I was. That video was fantastic. Fantoons did it. And uh, you were featured in it. And also other radio people, Dave Martson, Bob Coburn, Jim Ladd. Did you know them and their story helping Rush vault to stardom? Oh, I, these are all people I've known in the industry. Okay. Um, when you're in the industry, you run into each other at conventions, you run into each other at conferences. Was I close with them? Did they come to my house? No. Uh, Jim Ladd, I spoke to a few times. He used to do a, he was a pioneering album rock DJ from the coast. We've emailed each other a few times, but he was in one part of the country. I was in another part of the country. You're aware of each other because you read Billboard or Record World or Cashbox or one of the album rock trades like the Hard Report. And you just kind of read about what these stations are doing. Jim Ladd, I believe in 1979 or 1980, was hosting a syndicated program called Interview, which was in-depth interviews with rock stars. And he did one with Getty, and I have it. Um, so my relationship with a lot of these good folks was just that 
we were all competitors in a way. We were all working for album rock stations all over the country. We were aware of each other, but from a historical standpoint, it was more like we read about each other than that we hung out with each other. Still kind of cool to be in the same uh, cartoon. (laughs) I didn't know Marconi either. (laughs) He was in that video. And unless we have zombie apocalypse, I don't think Marconi's <laughs> coming back at any time soon. Now we've asked other guests this question, and we're trying to find we're trying to find the answer to it. Really, what is Rush's legacy? What's their place in rock history? What's the future going to think of Rush in context of rock and roll history? What is your opinion on all of those things? Well, first of all. There are always going to be some people that will dismiss Rush and that will say, ah, cult band, who cares? But that cult band had like, what, 16 gold albums? (laughs) That cult band had a star on the Walk of Fame. That cult band is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And an interesting thing about being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there's an awful lot of people that went in with them that were inducted at the same time that knew their music, that respected their playing, that admired who they were. Now, I suggest to you that in the future, historians will probably continue to say, yep, cult band. But I think they'll also say, but with each successive generation, instead of dying off, a new generation was apprenticed into the love of the band. This is a case where when I first got started, there weren't a lot of female Rush fans. There were some. There were some female Rush fans. But let's be honest. The vast majority of folks at your typical Rush concert were guys, mostly white guys, mostly white guys of a certain age, back then like 18 to 24-year-olds, okay? But those 18 to 24-year-olds bring their girlfriend or their sister or some other female in their family And the next thing you know, they find a song they like, or they tell someone, hey, you know, I just heard such and such, and it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And then maybe they give the next album a chance, and et cetera, and et cetera. By 10, 15 years later, I'm noticing something at their concerts. I'm noticing more females, and I'm starting to notice kids. I'm starting to notice Rush kids. Because as Rush fans marry, they apprentice their kids into the love of Rush. Hey, you got to hear this song, you know. And there are enough cities by that time that are playing some Rush songs. Okay, fine. The same ones like Tom Sawyer and Spirit of Radio, maybe Closer to the Heart. But at least they're playing some Rush songs. And gradually, the fan base expands. And unlike most cult bands, it grows. There's more people that are becoming fans and more and more. Now, Rush will never be historically like the Rolling Stones or the Beatles because they never got that mass appeal airplay. But they will always be remembered as a thinking person's rock band, as a creative rock band, as a rock band that always had more surprises for you and that always had a lyric that made you go, yeah, that, that one, that lyric, okay? So I don't know if 
25, 30 years from now, there will still be a growing bunch of Rush fans. But you know what? I wouldn't be surprised because Rush have had staying power beyond what anybody predicted. Like I told you at the beginning of this, if you had told me in 1974 that in 2020 we would still be (laughs) talking about this band, I would have said, yeah, right, it never happens. And yes, it happened. What does the future hold? I don't know. But something tells me that there's enough new fans coming in that there will continue to be interest in this band. How long? I have no idea. But when the history of rock and roll is written, it will be impossible to ignore bands like Rush just because they stuck around for so long and gathered so many fans along the way. What's fascinating to me about Rush, I'm center left in my politics, okay? But I know passionate Rush fans who are center right or hard right or hard left or centrist or libertarian or they couldn't care less about politics or they're religious or they're atheists. My point is, no matter who you are, there's something for you in the body of work that Rush have given us over the years. Rush have brought people together from all over the world. It is stunning to me. And when the final chapter in the history of rock and roll gets written, you're going to have to reckon with the fact that this band far exceeded everyone's expectations and continues to exceed everyone's expectations as new fans find them and old fans remain as loyal and as passionate as they always were. Donna Halper. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast. We really appreciate it. We're honored to have you here. Well, thank you for the privilege. I'm really, really grateful. And thank you for caring enough about Rush because it's unusual for people of so many different walks of life to still be as passionate about Rush. And I'm very grateful that I've lived to see that. I'm very grateful that you guys care enough to want to talk some Rush. And I'm very honored that you wanted to talk some Rush with me. So thank you. Thanks, Donna. Have a great holiday. So, Jer, finally, we've had Donna Halper on the podcast. Exciting. Yeah, we've had a lot of requests over the months. When are you going to have Donna Halper on? Well, here it is. Christmas present for our listeners. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) So what did you think? Well, it's always interesting hearing her talk about the band. She loves the band. She loves the guys in the band. She's a fan and a friend. Just fantastic hearing her perspective on things. Yeah. And the thing that jumped out at me is her answer to my question about whether this could happen again today. And it really couldn't. Yeah. I didn't know what she was going to say, but my feeling was that it could never happen again, given the, just like she said, the, the fractured nature of media in general today. One in a million shot, right? Yeah. One of those right time right place deals happens sometimes. And we were all the beneficiaries of it. You know, since it's the holidays, Jer, I did want to thank a few people for their help over the, the past year, because we couldn't do this podcast without the help of a whole lot of people who have really taken care of us over this past year. Oh, absolutely. And without any kind of 
expectation of return on investment. They're just helping us because they love Rush and we've become friends and we just call them up and say, hey, can you help us with this? Can you guide us this way? And they're just like, absolutely. So first of all, Mark Irwin, who really got us started with the podcast and continues to be a champion of the podcast and help us out. Yeah. So thank you, Mark. Ryan at Rush Fans on Instagram. Jeez, yeah. This guy does so much for us. Thank you, Ryan. Ray Warzniak. We we call up all the time and say, hey, Ray, <laughs> what about this? What about that? We ask him questions all the time, and he's always so accommodating. Right. Always helps us out. And of course, there's Ed Stenger of the Rushes of Band blog, mm-hmm. John Petuto of CygnusX1.net, yep. Eric Hansen of Power Windows. We go to those websites all the time yep. to get the information. We bring you on the podcast, and without them, we couldn't do the podcast. So Not at all. And of course, all the guests, Jerry, we've had on the podcast in the past year. We don't have time to run through all of them, but thanks so much to everybody who's contributed to the podcast over the past year and the people who listen. Yeah, I, I can't believe the number of people who listen, Steve. Well, thanks so much to every single person out there who's listening. Happy holidays to you. Yeah. And uh, hope you're safe during this pandemic. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast, Instagram, we are the RushCast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Let him know what you thought of our interview with Donna Halper. The bass intro and outro is Lex, another huge contributor to the podcast, Jerry. Yep. Thanks, Lex, for your work this year, and happy holidays to you. And Jerry, what's your quote for today? Oh, well, I figured I'd go back to the one that started it all, right? Okay. Working, working man. Will I get up at 7? Yeah, and I go to work at 9. I've got no time for living. Yes, I'm working all the time. Nice. Take it easy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too, Steve. Thanks, Jer. Thanks, Jer.